I'm Monica Olson. And I'm Jennifer Walsh. And you're listening to the Biophilic Solutions Podcast, where every other week we sit down with experts and thought leaders across industries in order to explore the innate connection between humans and nature and why we need nature to thrive. We truly believe that in order to tackle the global environmental problems we're facing, we as humans must reconnect to the natural world and come to a better understanding of how we fit in and how we are so interconnected. So in every episode, we'll interview new guests that help us uncover and highlight nature-based solutions to get us on a path to greater health, tackling climate change, and ultimately getting outside and connecting with nature. So let's get to today's episode. Hi, Monica. Hey, Jennifer. Okay, so Monica, I'm so excited to share today's episode with our listeners because for one thing, I love the topics we dive into, but also our guest, Alpi Vic, is such a fascinating wealth of knowledge and is such a kind person. It was such a great conversation. Yes, I've known Alfie for years because of all the work he's done at Serenby, and we're also on the Biophilic Institute board together. Alfie is a professor over at the UGA, which is the University of Georgia, where he comes down to Serenby quite often, has designed our medicinal gardens, among other things, and also leads native plant walks. I won't give away too much at the top, but he's also worked on some really interesting projects throughout the community, which we'll talk about in the episode. Yes. So today we're diving into topics like landscape architecture, how landscape design improves our well-being, ethnobotany, and environmental ethics. Our guest, Alfie Vick, who we have already talked about a little bit, is the Georgia Power Professor in Environmental Ethics at the University of Georgia and Director of Environmental Ethics Certificate Program. That's a mouthful. <laughs> in addition to this, he also serves on the faculty of the Institute of Native American Studies. His work focuses on green infrastructure and sustainable site design, native plant communities, and even the Cherokee ethnobotany. Again, a mouthful. Yes, he's a very busy guy. Now, in addition to all that work at UGA, Alfie continues to practice landscape architecture, and his work includes several lead platinum buildings, including working on the headquarters of South Face Energy Institute here in Atlanta. He is the past chair of the Sustainable Sites Technical Advisory Group for the U.S. Green Building Council and founding chair of the Athens branch of the U.S. Green Building Council. He's also served on multiple environmental organization boards. So we're so thrilled to have Alfie in the podcast today. So without further ado, let's get to our interview with Alfie Vick. Alfie, it's so great to have you here today with us. How are you? I'm doing great. It's great to be here with you. We're thrilled to have you on the show, Alfie. I've heard so much about you through Monica and everyone else at Serum B. So I'm so happy to finally see you on video and to finally chat with you. Well, I'm a big fan of the podcast, so I'm glad to and honored to be invited. Oh, we love to Thank hear that. You. Well, we want to start a little bit with your background, which is in landscape, architecture, mm-hmm. environmental ethics, which I think is fascinating, and also Native American ethnobotany. So tell us a little bit about that, where you are today, and how you got into it. All right. Well, how I got into landscape architecture, which is really the start of my career here, is I grew up in suburban Chicago, and I think I have a landscape architecture origin story that's probably similar to a lot of people. I grew up in a a neighborhood that was really on the outskirts of suburban development in Chicago, surrounded by cornfields, hedgerows, marshes. And me and my friends had the opportunity to explore these kind of semi-natural areas. They were all, of course, very impacted by uh, human development, but it felt wild to us. And it was a really amazing way to grow up and build tree houses and marsh forts and all this kind of stuff. Wow. But my little brother, who's six years younger than me, by the time 
he was old enough to be out exploring on his own, a lot of those places had been developed into cookie cutter subdivisions like the one I lived in. And it really impacted me to see the loss of those places and realize that the kids growing up after me weren't going to have access to that same opportunity. And I didn't decide right then and there to become a landscape architect. But as I got to know what the profession of landscape architecture could do to create places and save places for people to experience nature, that really made the decision for me. And so that's how I got into landscape architecture. I moved to Georgia to attend school for landscape architecture, and I've been here in Georgia ever since. And really part of that is that I just fell in love with the landscape of the Southeast. You've got mountains and Piedmont and the coast all within a four-hour transect. And it just, the diversity amazed me. I really wanted to learn as much as possible about it. And I think that drew me into a study of ethnobotany because what better way to learn about the landscape and the plants than to work with the cultures that have been embedded in that place for thousands of years. And so I've done a lot of work with the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians as well as the Cherokee Nation and really I'm kind of focused with my ethnobotany research on Cherokee ethnobotany. And I guess to tie in the environmental ethics I think that's at the core of probably everything that I do and many landscape architects and and people working with the environment that we value our relationship with nature and feel like there's an intrinsic right for nature to continue to thrive. And of course, we benefit from that as well. So. Well, that's a In rich a background. <laughs> that's definitely a rich background, Alfie. Well, what is your, like, because I haven't heard many people getting into ethnobotany. Was there a certain point or maybe a, an event that you witnessed or you saw that said, this is a field I'm definitely serious about? Or what was it that wanted to make you really dive into ethnobotany? And what exactly, can you actually tell our listeners what exactly I mean, you, you are referring to, but what exactly is ethnobotany? Yeah, sure. It's the study of the cultural significance of plants to Mm -hmm. specific cultures. And I would expand that. And often you hear the term ethnoecology as well. Mm -hmm. So it's not just plants, but that's what ethnobotany is focused on the plants. I got into it kind of by accident. I was teaching a native plant communities field course, and I had students doing this three-week field course with me. And I was teaching them about native plants and native plant communities throughout the Southeast. And I knew a little bit about some of the cultural uses and significance of plants. And I would always try to add that information in because it's, you know, in addition to being very interesting and and worthwhile information, it also helps to remember plants. It helps to, you start to associate an identity with the landscape and with plants the more you hear these stories. And the students just really demanded more of that information, which forced me to learn more, to be able to share it. And and really, it was just that kind of feedback that got me into it more. Eventually, I realized that I needed to go outside of books to learn more. And that's when I really started working directly with the tribal nations. There's a story that I've heard about you doing a native plant tour here at Serenby where a woman maybe brushed up against poison ivy or oak or something, and you knew that there had to be a plant adjacent to it that would heal it. Is that true? Tell me, tell us a little bit about that. Cause that technically, I've been, heard about this, by the way, <laughs> right? that, would, that yes. would be what you're talking about a little bit, right? Telling stories about the plants beyond identification. 
Right. Well, sure. So I, <laughs> is I it a re- is I, it a, no pressure? Is it, no pressure. Taylor. <laughs> no, I remember that moment, and it happens pretty frequently that someone accidentally brushes up against some poison ivy. Not always, but often, if you're in a lower kind of wet area, there is a plant called jewelweed. The botanical name is Impatiens capensis, and it's a native plant species grows in wet areas, often adjacent to streams and wetlands. And it is a natural poison ivy remedy. And you simply take some of the leaves and stems of the jewelweed. It's a really fleshy, moist stem. Crush it up and literally just rub it on your skin. It can be used either to try to remove the oils from the poison ivy. It can also be used as a preventative if you know that you'll be brushing up against poison ivy, which, of course, is not recommended. But it really does. It helps to neutralize or remove the oils from the poison ivy before they can really cause the dermatitis. It's a great one. It's, it's easy to recognize. It's got a beautiful orange horn-shaped flower, like tubular flower. Wow. It's, it's a great plant. Do we know in botany, like, why it is that they grew up together near each other? I mean, purely because they were sort of these, if you will, complementary plants? Well, I think it's simply about the environment that they're growing in. Now, poison ivy has a much broader range of cultural conditions, is what we refer to it, you know, that uh, environmental conditions that it can grow in. So you'll find poison ivy growing all over the place. There's not always jewelweed nearby. But jewelweed is pretty specific to wetter, moist, well-drained soil. So you, if you know where to look for it, you're likely to find it. Well, Boys that is like one. Of, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, super, super interesting. When you started working with Native Americans and started understanding the cultural importance and the historical significance of place after that sort of moment where you're like, okay, the, you know, these students really want more. What was the first class that you kicked off with? Well, I knew that I was kind of on the edges of my expertise. And when I started thinking about doing a course in Native American ethnobotany. So the first thing I did was reach out to the Institute of Native American Studies at the University of Georgia. I knew that we had a program. I, at that time, was not directly involved with it. And I talked to the director, his name at the time was Jace Weaver. And he basically, you know, after we introduced ourselves He said, we don't offer a class in that field, but we've been wanting to, and you're the perfect person to do it. (laughs) So it was kind of immersion, really, uh, at that point. And Jace, along with others in the Institute of Native American Studies, really facilitated me being introduced to folks with the Cherokee Nation at first. And so it was really kind of building those relationships that led to me offering the first field course that I did in Cherokee ethnobotany. I can't certainly don't want to take all the credit for that because it was a collaborative effort. And I, along that course, which I offered as a field course, I was following the 1,000 mile route of the northern route of the Trail of Tears, basically from Georgia to Tahlequah, Oklahoma. And along the way, we stopped daily and meet with different experts, ethnobotanists, historical experts, and Cherokee citizens and have those kinds of interactions along the way. Yeah, that's super interesting. I think it's fascinating, right? Because I always think it's also interesting the fact that so many more people are interested in these studies and how does it bring us back to the land where we are now? So do you see, have you seen a big rise in interest, by the way, Alfie? Absolutely. I think part of the interest in studying ethnobotany is 
there's just interest in learning the information. But I think a lot of it stems back to recognizing the need for conservation. And that's both environmental conservation as well as cultural conservation and preservation. There's so much interwoven in the stories and the real significance of plants and ecology to the culture that preserving the environments, preserving the species is intertwined with preserving the cultural traditions and the cultural identity. And so I think there is a renewed interest. Part of that is out of necessity, recognizing that people age and pass on, that there is a need to preserve that knowledge. And so I think if you look at many indigenous communities right now, there is a very organized and concerted effort to pass that knowledge on to the younger generations. And I think you'll find in a lot of tribal communities that that is happening, that they're really elegantly combining the traditional knowledge and the traditional wisdom with modern scientific analysis and studies and using that integration to plan for the future of their communities. Mm-hmm. I love that idea too, the elegance of it, the elegance mm-hmm. of the beauty of the plants working together and in harmony with each other. And then, of course, ourselves. And then I'm wondering if your work and landscape architecture has really, I'm trying to find the right word, like because of your work with ethnobotany has really helped you kind of, I guess, experience more with your work in the landscape architecture. Are you just finding new opportunities because of your studies and your work? Well, I would say one of the outcomes, if you want to think of it that way, of this kind of direction that I've gone is that certainly I think I have an appreciation for Mm -hmm. the cultural history and significance of any place. My work has primarily been in the Southeast, but there is a cultural history that is intertwined with that with that environment and that place. And I think that is from a landscape architecture and a design and a planning perspective, that is important on any project, on any site to, often we refer to it as the genius loci of a place, the genius of the place. And that's that. Yeah. It's a term that we use to kind of embody the unique identity of a place. Some of that is part of the, just the physical terrain, the plants that are present at the time, but it also is the history, some of the invisible aspects of a particular place at a particular time. And so in designing, you need to be certainly aware of that history and you need to be sensitive to it. And to the extent possible and the extent that's appropriate, you want to kind of reveal that history through the design and be able to tell the story of the place through design so that people who are experiencing that place are able to hopefully be able to perceive some of that history and and get to know the genius loci just by being present in that place after it's been designed. We'll be right back after a quick break. Jennifer, guess what's coming up and where we get to hang out. What's that, Monica? (laughs) The Biophilic Leadership Summit. It's back this March 24th through 26th. Oh my gosh, I cannot wait to see you in person again. It's been way too long. I know, me too. And we invite all our listeners to come to this year's summit. We're going to be exploring biophilic placemaking and how we use biophilic principles to promote health, happiness, and vitality in public spaces. Yes, and I was just reading over the schedule, which I'm very excited about. There are so many great speakers and panels. And when you get to join us, I'll be doing a nature walk 
and moderating a wonderful panel on activating community spaces with two incredible women, an architect and an urban planner. So this summit is put on by the Biophilic Institute and Biophilic Cities Project. So you can also come meet all of the leading experts in biophilia. And in addition to all incredible multiple presentations, we're going to have all sorts of great farm to table meals, plus cocktails, some book signings and lots of networking, which is always a favorite. And it's going to be at your and my favorite place, the Inn at Serenby. Yep, that's one of my favorite places, as you know. So join us in Sarah B for the 6th Annual Biophilic Leadership Summit from March 24th to March 26th, 2024. And you can learn more about the summit and register today at biophilicsummit.com. That's biophilicsummit.com. We hope to see you there. We'll see you soon. Bye, Jen. Bye. That's amazing. Do you have any good examples of that that you've worked on or that you can point to? Whether that, I don't know if that would be like a botanical garden or a development or a corporation or a city that is doing it really well, like a almost a case study or something. <laughs> Are you looking for me to suggest that Serenby is? A- <laughs> no, I'm not leading you down that path. That is, we, we have a whole other podcast for Serenby. No, um, good point. No, I, I, I just point. was curious because I do think, or at least the way I learn, I really love the layers. I need the layers. When I get the story about the plant, right, mm-hmm. that makes me remember the jewel weed. But if you maybe had just said, Monica, this is a jewel read and this is what it does. I don't know if I'd remember it, but the sort of storytelling of like the woman getting poison ivy and it was there and it's, and then I start to understand where it is. So layering on that history beyond, again, identification, do you feel like anybody's doing a really good job of that right now? Absolutely. I mean, I think there are hundreds of projects throughout the United States that are happening that, that are good examples of that. And really, when I'm talking about my approach to this, I think you'll find a lot of landscape architecture firms and landscape architects out there that this is how we do things. So really, gosh, you could look at some of the big projects in Atlanta along the Beltline that any of these new parks and green space projects are mm-hmm. always going through this process of research and understanding what is the history of the site? What is the history of the community that has interacted with this place over generations and generations? And what is the community that will be there in the future? And thinking about how to kind of address that spectrum of stakeholders and think about how to create places that are relevant to the present and future, but also help to kind of convey the history and legacy of the past all over the place. One example that I will talk about just briefly here in Serenby, just there's a small green space that I designed, oh gosh, I guess it was probably six or seven years ago in the Motto Hamlet, and it's the little medicinal garden. We made the decision as we were designing that place to design it as a microcosm of the larger environment of this area of the Piedmont of the Southeast. And recognizing that here at Serenby, there's probably, what, 300 acres of developed land, but 700 acres conservation land, natural areas and green space, Mm -hmm. um, much of it in a natural condition with trails going through it. And so what we wanted to do was design this little half acre garden to -hmm. be representative of that 700 acres of ecology 
introduce many of the plants, of course, not all of the plants, but many of the plants that one would find on a hike through the woods, but do it in a way that was accessible, certainly mm-hmm. ADA accessible with mm-hmm. sidewalks and, and ramps so that anybody could start to get familiar with the edible plants that you might find out in the forest. Mm-hmm. And then who knows, maybe someday after someone has gotten to know the plants in the medicinal garden, maybe they're out on a hike one day and they find some ripe service berries on a service mm-hmm. berry tree and they think, hey, I can eat those. I, I've eaten those in the, in the <laughs> garden before. So I really was thinking of it as a way to act as a little bit of a, a mediator between mm-hmm. people's relationship with the environment and with nature and also kind of a mentor, you know, recognizing that not everybody has grown up with the interest of spending hours and hours out in the woods like I did, but everybody can benefit from a walk in the woods. We know that from all the, the research on health and wellness related to biophilia. Mm-hmm. And so if you can kind of introduce people and build that comfort for people who might not already have developed that, that's it's kind of what I see landscape architecture and landscape architects doing is we're trying to facilitate people's mm-hmm. relationship and access to nature, both in natural areas, but also in very much designed I won't say artificial because we're talking about living things, but mm-hmm. designed landscapes that maybe are much safer and comfortable for people mm-hmm. who might not yeah. yet have that comfort level. I love that idea because it's almost like giving people permission to just be there and then to kind of explore at their own rate. Because when I first went to Serenby, one of the first places Monica showed me was that uh, the garden. And I kept going back there and I just loved the path. I felt so at ease exploring that little space and to get to know it better. But again, mm-hmm. giving people permission to be in that space mm-hmm. and just be present and feel it and smell it and sense it and the breeze around you. And then being able to then explore and take that with you and then explore either whether it be a Serenby or wherever else. Cause I just said, well, I just learned about this plant in the space. I wonder if it's here in New York or what have you. It's, it's really fantastic. That's right. Yep. Yeah. And there are places like that everywhere. Yeah, I was going to say that the organized versus, and I don't know if this is the right term, natural, more wild or natural Mm -hmm. nature, right? And I think of other places that I've been to recently, like the High Line in New York is an interesting, very organized, yet incorporates wild or I don't know, Alfie, if you've been out to San Francisco lately, but right on the waterfront there below the Presidio, they've really brought it kind of this estuary meadow back, but it sort of has this organized versus wild. Like Mm -hmm. where does that sit in landscape architecture? Because a lot of people want the perfectly manicured landscape Where does that sit? Is is there a push-pull within the industry or within the thought process of like one is better than the other or do you have trends or, you know, how does that work? (laughs) No. The best way for me to kind of summarize what you're talking about and explain it from a design standpoint is to refer back to some work that was done a couple decades ago by Rachel and Stephen Kaplan. They're environmental Mm -hmm. psychologists. Mm -hmm. And they found that there were four patterns in the environment and landscapes that people really responded to. And there, there is kind of a push-pull with these. So what you were just describing is the push-pull between complexity and coherence. And so people really like complex, diverse landscapes, lots of plants, lots of flowers, lots of textures, visually stimulating. Mm-hmm. But that can be overwhelming and it can at some point 
cross a tipping point where people start to feel unsafe or you know distracted. And that's so that's right. So you balance the complexity with coherence. And you might do that by grouping plants together, by having different heights kind of organized in a planting bed. And that starts to give some coherence to the complexity. So that's kind of a push-pull there. And then the other push-pull is between mystery and legibility. So mystery, like in the medicinal garden, those windy paths kind of lead you through the garden. You can't always see exactly what's around the bend, but that path is taking you somewhere safe. So there's mystery because you can't see everything at once, but there's legibility because you know that path isn't going to go off the edge of a cliff or something, you know? (laughs) So you know that if you follow the path, you will get to destination. And there's a little bit more mystery because once you get to the end of the garden, there are other routes that are just trails off into the woods. And so you can take that next leap to start to follow one of those trails and actually get out into the more wild nature. Yeah, that makes so much sense. I've never heard that before. And we talk about like the biophilic patterns, right? Mm-hmm. Bill Browning or Keller. But this is interesting because this is a different, another pattern. Um, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Super and, cool. and actually, you'll see that mystery, I think, mm-hmm. is one of the biophilic patterns. Yes. Yeah, that's great. Well, and that, those are just good tips for even just the home gardener, right? Who oh, maybe yeah. doesn't hire a landscape architect. But just to think about that, that you want to put all these plants in. But yeah, it can be cacophony you know, <laughs> or chaotic. Mm-hmm. I think that's super interesting. Mm-hmm. One of the things I wanted to ask you was you sort of touched on that fostering a greater connection to nature. And you, you even started talking about it where you might have an organized garden, like the medicinal garden that then leads off into the woods. Do you find that more landscape designers are wanting to have more of that wild access, adjacency, conservation of land. Has it been changing over the years, getting rid of our huge expanses of lawns around corporate campuses? Mm-hmm. Where is that? What, what we would call biophilic design and yeah. landscape, but yeah. we think about it all the time, but is it out there? Is it, is it oh, yeah. changing? Are people's minds changing? Yep. I think we've got a long way to go. I know that there are some really great proposals out there for expanded conservation. I think 30 by 30 is one of the ones that I've just have been hearing about lately, a proposal to have 30% of the land area in the United States in some form of conservation by 2030. But absolutely. And the way that I'll you know, explain this is a couple of different imperatives that are being met through conservation. One of them is resilience. And especially Mm -hmm. in coastal areas, the need to have land that is in conservation that can help to buffer and absorb pulses Mm -hmm. of whether it be storm surge or sea level rise or whatever whatever the, the stressor is, conservation land is critical for creating more resilient human communities. So we've got that happening on coastal areas. Even in urban areas, recognizing the ecosystem services that are provided by intact natural areas. And you could be talking about things simply like mitigating the urban heat island, Mm -hmm. providing pollutant removal and fresh air, stormwater management and water infiltration. All of Mm -hmm. these ecosystem services, we've gotten so much more sophisticated in both quantifying and Mm -hmm. valuing the contributions of intact natural areas that that's helping to support a lot of the efforts to conserve those areas and and keep those ecosystem services provided to our communities. 
I think that's so important, especially I live in New York City and I feel like everyone's talking about mitigating future peril and issues. But I think it's so fascinating because landscape architects have have this great opportunity and gift to really teach and educate why nature matters, not just for human health, but then again, for planetary health. And how do we then build on what we have to create better resources of knowledge, these like young people that are coming up and understanding, like, how do we then protect our own backyards? How do we become landscape architects in our own way to learn the power of nature for protection and resilience, like you said? And it's, you've got to be seeing it everywhere, because I think that's got to be top of mind for so many right now. Right. And one thing that I just have to mention is that the availability of nature in terms of the accessibility of nature Mm -hmm. to neighborhoods and communities, there's a lot of disparity there. And Mm -hmm. we've got a long way to go to make sure that there is equitable access to parks and green space and nature in cities. Uh, So I think that is a big effort nationwide. There are massive projects going on with the Trust for Public Land, Urban Land Institute, and other organizations Mm -hmm. that are working hard to document where that disparity exists and then look for solutions to how to introduce more green space to communities that need it. It's a real problem, but it's one that we can easily address if we work hard at it. Talking about moving water around, I was just out in Los Angeles in the L.A. River. I don't know if you're familiar with the L.A. River project. Mm -hmm. That's sort of a fascinating one to me because it goes through the whole city, right? And so much of the channel Mm -hmm. is through maybe neighborhoods that have been neglected. There is like a new crazy bridge. I think it's the 6th Street Viaduct in downtown Los Angeles, but it's getting a lot of press in LA because it's become like an Instagram phenomenon, but also people are like doing like donuts on it and it's kind of, <laughs> and they're climbing it. So it's this whole problem, but it is over the river and there's access down to it. And there's a goal of putting a park into it. Hmm. Do you find that a lot of people or a lot of cities are thinking about doing that sort of in a way, taking back the quote waterways oh, gosh. Um, yes. and greening them? Because yeah. that seems to me that those waterways are, if you will, goes through the whole city. So mm-hmm. it could be incredible access is, are there other projects, anything in the Southeast that's happening or that you're, that you know of? Yep. Again, I would say probably every major city in the United States is thinking about how to reclaim some of these neglected or impacted Mm -hmm. natural areas that in many cases have been industrial waste Mm -hmm. plants for decades. Mm -hmm. So absolutely, that's happening all across the country. It is important. It's a way to clean up the environment, clean up water. Also, Mm -hmm. it's absolutely a human health priority partly because of cleaning up the environment, but also giving people opportunities to be outside, getting physical activity. People are three times more likely to exercise if they have access to green space. (laughs) uh, So it's very direct benefit to human health and well-being to have access to green space. Again, I ought to mention that one of the realities of a lot of this reclaiming of green space and improving green space is that it improves quality of life, which Mm. tends to attract people to those neighborhoods. And you do see a lot of, I guess, the one aspect that I want to say we have to be cognizant of and think about ways to mitigate is the negative impact of gentrifying neighborhoods Mm -hmm. through good things like introducing parks and green space. So there has to be kind of a a balance in thinking about how to manage that reality. 
I think that is in no way am I advocating that we don't build more parks and green spaces in communities that need them, but we need to be aware that that will potentially attract investors and more people that will drive up housing prices. And we don't want people displaced from their neighborhoods. So there's a whole different set of tools and policies that can help to address that. Are you seeing a rise in people that want to be architects, uh, landscape architects, because of the connection to nature? Are you seeing maybe more people than ever before trying to be in this field to really have that connection to teaching and then, of course, be a part of policy change as well? Yeah, absolutely. And enrollment in our program over the last five years has just been skyrocketing. I think you see that in many programs around the country. Yeah, I think the pandemic brought a lot of attention to the need for parks and green spaces. If you guys remember, geez, in those first six, nine months of the pandemic, when indoor places were essentially locked and we weren't going inside, everybody was craving access to parks. And it really highlighted the need for more parks as well as places where there wasn't that adequate access. And Mm -hmm. I think we're seeing a lot of interest in landscape architecture, partly because of that. Mm -hmm. And this isn't maybe directly tied to landscape architecture. It's maybe a little bit of the urban planning combined. But I just read an article about, and maybe it was New York, Jen, that during the pandemic, the city had opened up, I'm going to make this up, 83 miles of, or sorry, they closed down 83 miles of streets to cars. Mm -hmm. And now it's now a third of that. Mm -hmm. Like the cars have clawed back the the space. And I think letting the restaurants go out onto the sidewalks Mm -hmm. or and making parklets and closing down these streets and, or Mm -hmm. even, you know, it went years ago when they closed down relatively Times Square or Herald Square. Yeah. We need more of that. Is that sort of intersecting with what you're doing from an urban planning? Is your industry having an effect on them to kind of green the cities that way by basically saying, we're not going to have cars on this three block stretch? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Even where I live in Athens, Georgia, there's a, a stretch of the little downtown that was closed down during the pandemic to make room for outdoor seating for many of the restaurants there. And They've decided now to keep that section closed. And oh, within fantastic. The next, yep, I'm sure within the next 12 months, there will be a request for proposals for designers to come up with concepts for how to basically rip out the asphalt and turn it into mm-hmm. a permanent park and green space. So, yeah, that kind of stuff, again, happening all over. It's absolutely necessary. I think, you know, we can definitely be strategic about that. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the pandemic... There was a lot of opportunistic reclaiming of green space, but mm-hmm. at this point, we can assess what has worked, what hasn't, and and really think about meeting the needs of the urban environment and the urban neighborhoods very directly with a lot of planning. I like to think about the positive solutions. You know, so much of our day-to-day can be mm-hmm. all the negative news around us, and it's like there are so many cool things happening, and even though... This article I read was sort of like, again, the cars were sort of taking it back. The fact that they're still post, I guess we're not really post, but wherever we are in the pandemic. The new world. The new world. (laughs) (laughs) They did gain so many acres or so many miles of Mm -hmm. space. But I'm hopeful that Atlanta and LA and New York and all the cities will really rethink, how do we let it be for the pedestrian, Mm -hmm. the people? Rather than the car, because the car is so dangerous. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, one way to do that is to think about the multiple layers of benefit and function that can be stacked on top of each other in these mm-hmm. sure. uh, landscapes. Mm-hmm. Because it is. It's pedestrian access. It's um, mm-hmm. opportunities to sit and relax and socialize. But it's also stormwater management. Mm-hmm. It's biodiversity. It's heat island mitigation. All these things that can be achieved through a properly designed urban park. Yeah, and I think more people mm-hmm. are more receptive to the idea of human health, especially in this new pandemic world of, oh, wow, I definitely am considering my health. And, oh, my gosh, it is cooler when there's more trees and we need more biodiversity to be the healthiest human beings we can be in a specific mm-hmm. city or place. So I'm hopeful. Like we always, Monica and I always talk about is with biophilia, I feel like nature is always hopeful. So we always try and put lens or start looking down the lens of hope versus like the doom and gloom that happens to be always the top stories of the day. So I'm very hopeful for a more green future for all of us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And thinking about how we're not very prescriptive on this podcast, even though it's called Biophilic Solutions, we're hoping we're sharing solutions with people. Mm -hmm. But a lot of times we don't say like, okay, well, this is what you, the listener can go do. But hopefully, because I just think the listener will be engaged and decide what they want to do, you know, versus us saying like, here are three ways that you can green your home. But I do think thinking about if the city council in your neighborhood has a proposal out going and advocating for that, right? Or if you do have any influence or you know the mayor, like asking your mayor, like, what are our plans? And then socializing that with other citizens. I just think those, that's what I hope that people get out of these conversations is they can think like, oh, that really struck me. Maybe that's giving me my thing. Mm-hmm. So I love, I love everything you're sharing with us. Well, I'll do a shout out for the botanical gardens out there that you helped work on, which is stunning. Yeah, that's been really rewarding to see how that garden has changed over the last 10 years. Back, I guess it was exactly 10 years ago, I worked on a master plan update for the state botanical garden. And in that master plan update, we suggested, oh gosh, I think eight or 10 major projects, including a children's garden and a new center for art and nature, a lot of different things. They've implemented almost all of them. So yeah, it's been an amazing growth of the different spaces out there at that garden. I can't Um, wait to come down and check it out. You should see it. The, The children's garden is amazing. Very natural very child-directed play. Yeah, and I think it's, again, one of those things about biophilia that we've all come to recognize lately is the importance of giving children opportunities to mm-hmm. experience nature. I mean, we've in many ways, we've, over the last two generations, we've taken a lot of that opportunity away. And I think mm-hmm. we all realized that was bad. <laughs> and so <laughs> finding yep. ways to reconnect children with nature is mm-hmm. incredibly important. And that's one of the things that Children's Garden, of course, is focused on. But, you know, how do we take some of those ideas and bring them into neighborhoods and mm-hmm. urban streetscapes and school play yards and all of that? that? Those are important things to be thinking about in the future. Sounds great. How can we support you? Are you on social media? What can we share that's out there for you? Yeah, well, definitely share the Environmental Ethics website, the UGA um, Environmental Ethics Certificate Program. We have constant events. And of course, if you're local, those are something you can attend in person. But many of our seminars and other events are broadcast virtually as well. So that, that would be probably the primary thing that I would like to share. Great. Fantastic. Well, well and you. you're in Serenby, you know, Alfie does walks here and there every 
couple months. Including um, tomorrow morning. But that's right. <laughs> Just, are you guys trying to torture me right now? You know, sorry, Dad. <laughs> it's always so many great things happening in Serbia, and I am not there right now. But that's okay. Hopefully, I'll, I'll meet soon. you soon. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I hope to meet you in person someday soon. Well, Alfie, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate your time. And as usual, fascinating conversation. Yeah, I love talking so much. with you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. So a really interesting conversation, as always. I was especially intrigued by the idea around balancing wilderness with order in terms of landscape architecture. I think the medicinal garden at Serenby is a really great example of that. If you haven't had the chance to see it in person, it's this beautiful, really wild landscape that is surrounded by winding walkable paths and really cute cottage homes, which I absolutely love. It's so distinct from a very highly manicured, perfect garden, but there's also a clear path and way to move around the space. Yeah, that conversation really interested me as well. And it's something that's come up multiple times in our conversations with Bill Browning, Nina Marie Leister, and I'm sure many others. But this idea of like balancing the wild with order and that mystery is something that really appeals to humans. I'm also drawn to the landscape garden that then naturally leads out to the true wilderness. Absolutely. I also love the way that Alfie incorporates all of this, the culture and history of the place and paying homage to indigenous people through the landscape. It's really beautiful. And I'm really encouraged to hear that more and more people are catching on to this way of thinking and living. I'll just add that anyone who's been on a walk with Alfie knows that his knowledge of plants and native tribes is off the charts. He's helped us uncover and understand so much of the rich context behind the land that is now Serenby, which is an invaluable resource. That's so great and so important. So last thing, I was very happy to hear that in almost every major city, there are projects to reclaim forgotten natural places like rivers and abandoned industrial parks. It reminded me so much of our talk with Hannah Palmer. So for anyone who's interested in learning more about this type of project, I'd refer back to her episode. Yeah, it's a really great avenue for people to find projects to get involved locally, too. So everyone, check out our show notes if you want to learn more about everything we covered today and the Environmental Ethics Program at UGA. And if you're in Athens, Georgia, definitely <laughs> check out the State Botanical Garden. Absolutely. Um, they're absolutely incredible. Yeah, they're really beautiful. Okay, Monica, I guess we'll talk to you later. All right. Bye, Jennifer. Bye. Thanks so much for listening. And if you're enjoying the podcast, we would love for you to follow us on your favorite podcast app. Give us a five-star rating and please leave us a review. It really goes such a long way towards helping us reach a wider audience and sharing these amazing interviews and solutions with the world. Absolutely. So thanks so much for following and reviewing the podcast. And we'll be back with another amazing interview in two weeks. You're now a part of the biophilic movement.